Good morning again. My message that I want to bring today is uh, it's just some thoughts that I've been having the last few weeks, and uh, it didn't quite come together the way I hoped it would. Uh, it's a little scatterbrained, so you'll have to just work with it and uh, see if you can get something out of it. I titled it Faithful in the Little Things. Faithful in the little things. Let's pause for a word of prayer. Father, we just bow before you. Give thanks again for a new day. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning. Thank you for your faithfulness to us, Lord, even in the little ways in our lives, Lord. We thank you, Father, that um, you care for us, that you see us, you know us, and you desire for us to grow to know you in a deeper way, in a fuller way, Father, to trust you and to walk faithfully in your ways. We love you, Lord, and we bless you. Thank you for what you have already given us this day. Father, may it become real in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, faithful in the little things, uh, start with a verse in Luke sixteen ten. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. It's kind of the theme verse for this message. Something to keep in mind as we go through it. When you think of names like Adoniram Judson, George Mueller, Hudson Taylor, Amy Carmichael, Corey Ten Boom, and others, you uh, many times were impressed by those who accomplished tremendous feats of faith in God. We are tempted to see them as great spiritual warriors, when in reality it is that they learn faithfulness in the small things first. God shows his tremendous grace and power through believers who have humbly submitted their lives to him. And the key is humbly. We forget the years of faithfulness in the little menial tasks of everyday life. The little events in life where they saw God at work in the little things that carried on into adulthood and a greater faith and trust in him. And in the Bible, there are numerous people who accomplished great acts of faith in the name of God. Yet many of them had humble beginnings that led to greater opportunities for the miraculous, you could say. We can learn from their example in faithfulness in the perceived smaller things in order to reach the greater purpose of God in our own lives. I want to go through a few of them, just a short summary. And the first one is Moses. Moses was brought up in the wealth. It's just a short summary on what they experienced. Moses was brought up in the wealth and luxury of an Egyptian palace. But after killing a man, which we know, he went on, he went on the run. He found himself in the desert depending on the graciousness of Jethro and in marrying his daughter and making his living as a shepherd. Moses spent 40 years of his life tending sheep until the Lord appeared to him at Horeb. He needed to care for sheep in order to lead the people of Israel to the promised land. 
Moses was humbled by his circumstances initially, but he willingly submitted himself in the smaller task of a shepherd in order to successfully lead God's people in the future. And I'm sure this taught him a lot of being out there in that wilderness for 40 years. I'm sure it changed him a lot. In spending 40 years with sheep, And in the end, we know that he came before the Lord and he said, I can do nothing. I can't even speak right anymore. And that's exactly what the Lord wanted. Then we have Joshua. Joshua stayed by Moses' side and served him faithfully. He was young when he became Moses' aide, but he lived to be a very old man leading Israel into battle and the promised land. While Moses was revered by the people and honored by God's presence, Joshua was simply an obedient assistant. Yet through his simplicity of obedience, God raised a warrior who would defeat the enemies of the nation of Israel. By doing the smaller tasks of assisting Moses, Joshua was proved and prepared to take hold of leadership. And I'm sure you can see it in his life as you think about him that he served Moses faithfully. And not only Moses, of course, he served God faithfully. And then we have David. Just as Moses learned to take care of sheep prior to leading Israel, David also was a shepherd. He defended his sheep from both the lion and bear in preparation for future battles. David was anointed by God to overcome the obstacles of being a shepherd before he could strategize and defeat the enemies of Israel. His courage was emboldened because of prior experiences of being tested when under threat. David started with learning the smaller responsibilities of being faithful, even under duress, so that he could become a capable uh, ruler in the kingdom and for God. And we can see this in his life. We can see it through the Psalms of just being out there, in the daily tasks of life, what he learned through all of that. And then we have Stephen. Um, Stephen was one of the seven believers chosen to wait on tables for the widows. It wasn't the most glamorous of jobs for the disciples. However, Stephen became being wise, faithful, and full of the Spirit of God took on this responsibility. Eventually, Stephen would be singled out for his faith and become the first martyr of the church. Stephen's humility didn't diminish his insight in preaching the word to those who persecuted him. He started out with the small task of feeding widows and finished greatly with the sacrifice of his life and sharing the truth of the gospel. Our willingness... To do the small but necessary tasks can most certainly open up the doors of greater opportunities for God to use us. We must trust God in the minor issues of life in order to gain a larger perspective of his purposes. And I think that is very true. Elizabeth Elliot kind of says it this way. Don't carry a Bible under your arm if you can't even sweep your room. 
Faithfulness in the smaller responsibilities speaks loudly to God's calling on our lives. May we be found faithful and willing to accomplish his will, even in the perceived inconsequential things. And oftentimes, <clears throat> it is our attitude is not good in these small things. These everyday tasks, our attitude and outlook on these things is not where it should be. I have a short parable here that someone compiled, and it goes like this. A man was assigned to peel a pile of potatoes. He didn't want to do it. He preferred that someone else do it. The longer he procrastinated, the longer the potatoes sat there. Finally, since no one else was going to do it, he reluctantly began peeling them, resenting every moment of it. What's more, the pile of potatoes looked bigger to him with each potato he peeled. And the resentment grew as well. He was unhappy and learned nothing from his task. Another man was assigned to peel a pile of potatoes. He decided the only way the job was going to get done, and done rightly, was if it was done ungrudgingly. He knew the potatoes would feed a lot of people, and that pleased him. So he began peeling them one by one. While peeling, he made good use of his time, thinking unselfishly about the work and about the others around him. He was increasingly grateful, too, to have a potato peeler. With each peeled potato, the pile looked smaller. No wonder, it was smaller. Before he was through, he became fairly skilled at peeling potatoes, and everyone was impressed with his happy outlook. When finished, he had a feeling of accomplishment and had gained a little more patience and humility. I think it matters a lot to God with what attitude we do with these seemingly insignificant tasks in our life. And as you can see from this uh, parable, what is missing in the first one? It, I think it's simply a consciousness and awareness of God and also others. The heart is not in the correct attitude, so therefore the work becomes a drudgery. And this person, obviously, saw no benefit in even doing this task. He didn't see that it would affect anything. I always tell my students in school that their attitude matters a lot, a lot more than they think it does. The thing is that nothing is likely to change in your present circumstances. The work needs to be done I tell them that their parents will probably not allow them to drop out of school. So you're left with a choice. Do it grudgingly with a sour attitude or realize that this is your lot in life, which is not going to change in the foreseeable future. So make the best of it and learn something along the way. And if you can bless and encourage others, I think most of us can look back and say, I wish that I just accepted that fact because I would have fewer regrets and would have probably enjoyed it more. Anyway, I do. Uh, I don't know what it is about it, but 
It seems like a lot of us have regrets of those days. Instead of just trying to keep our minds open to learning what God has for us in these things, we go about it the hard way. If we look at the life of Christ, he was also concerned with the little things. In Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 16, there is an important passage there. It says, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This is a passage that, uh, or it's, it's a time or an occasion that the disciples completely missed it. They thought that why would Jesus have time for little children? He has a lot of more important things to do than spend time with little children. His time is too precious. I mean, what do these children, what can they bring to Christ? They have nothing to give, nothing to offer. And it's the same way in our lives. A lot of times, I wonder what Christ would say when he sees us all at work and we miss the important things. And here he says he was indignant at them. He was angry at them for doing this. Do we take time to invest into the seemingly insignificant things in life, like children, for instance? Do we have the attitude that children often just get in our way? I don't have time for that, we say. And uh, what do we invest into them? It's a good question. It's a good challenge. And I don't just mean that we pass them by and we kind of tousel their hair and say, good boy. And uh, in God's wisdom, he orchestrated human life the way that he did for a reason. In the wisdom... In this wisdom, there is a period that is called childhood. If we could redo his creation, but we leave out this phase of life, are these little people just too much of a nuisance, like they were here to the disciples? What do we say? I'm often challenged with this. What do we say or do with their little creations that they bring to show us with smiles on their faces? Do we show them that we are interested in their little cares and questions? Do we take time to come down to their level and interact with them, even if we get nothing in return? As I think about this, I find myself quite guilty. Where a lot of times you're sitting and relaxing on your phone and they come to you and they want something from you, you just chew them away. And we can't even put our devices down to give them our full attention. 
or we say they should go look for their mother or their siblings. We all know that what, what that feels like if someone would do this to us, especially Christ. We feel very unimportant and less than. And sadly, I've been challenged by this even by my own children. Of a short story here, it says, Charles Francis Adams, the 19th century political figure and diplomat, kept a diary. One day he entered in this diary, went fishing with my son today, a day wasted. His son, Brooke Adams, also kept a diary, which is still in existence. On that same day, Brooke Adams made this entry, went fishing with my father, the most wonderful day of my life. The father thought he was wasting his time while fishing with his son, but his son saw it as an investment of time. The only way to tell the difference between wasting and investing is to know one's ultimate purpose in life and to judge accordingly. So two completely different views. And you can see it with Christ also and the disciples. What a waste of time. But Christ, he could be doing a, a lot more than spending time with children. But Christ had a totally opposite thing here. Our children are our next generation. What we invest into them directly correlates to their future. We probably all have memories of childhood when someone chose to invest into us, not because they had to, but because they cared and simply enjoyed spending time with us. And it's probably not big things either. And I remember quite a few of those times, especially my parents and my grandma, of just noticing you, spending time with you, just because they wanted to. Take notice of the little ones. Take them in your arms and bless them. Give them your attention because they want it. And if you won't give it to them, they'll find it elsewhere. And these times of seemingly innocent inter inter interactions, they become building blocks of trust and acceptance that they carry into childhood or adulthood, I mean. So those little things, may we not miss them in our children especially. And sure, we might not feel it's a great work of God, but if Jesus can do it, then so can we. And if Jesus feels it's important, then we should definitely also feel that it's important. And then we have the parable of the Good Samaritan as well, which goes along the same lines. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him pass by on the other side, so likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, 
and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy, and Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So another command from the Lord, something that he felt was very important. And it's like Brother Richard said, do we sense the needs around us? Or do we just pass by? Do we feel a lot of times that these needs are, this person can get by without my help, and it's insignificant. Whatever I'm going to do, is it won't matter anyway. I think that's exactly what the enemy wants us to believe. We can come, become so consumed with our work in our own selves that we miss the little things around us. And sometimes I wonder, even like picking up a piece of garbage, what does it matter? But if you remember in the beginning when I said that all of these great men and women that we admire, who were they when no one was looking? It's like the Samaritan here. Where did he get this from? Why did he stop and help out? I think because this man was genuine in his faith. He was conscious of other people's needs and he really cared. Why did he have oil and wine along in the first place? I think this is because it was probably not the first time that he had helped others. It was a lifestyle in faithfulness and compassion even with no one watching. And there was not a chance of repayment because we know the man he was helping had been robbed of his money. The Samaritan went beyond the call of duty here, did more than what is required. And I'm reminded what a brother, it seems to stick with me in this, I'm reminded what a brother shared here a few years ago. He said that we're so concerned about taking turns in doing our work. We make lists and sketches and so forth. And mind you, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It keeps order and distributes the workload fairly. But a Christian's mindset who is conscious of the needs around you, like this Samaritan was, is this. Even though it is not my turn, what can I do to help? It's the same thing that Jesus brought out in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. If someone compels you to go a mile, go with him too. Why are you doing that? Because you genuinely care. And you want to be faithful in these things. Some practical advice, basically, of just doing little things. Um, I'm not going to expound on them. I'm just going to read through them. Number one, just show up. Number two, be a good listener. Number three, keep things confidential. Number four, keep the door open. Number five, spend time with people. Number six, offer encouragement or prayer. Number seven, offer practical help. It's just things that anyone can do, but we, we, 
For some reason, we feel they're not important enough to really go and do them. Just showing up, being a good listener. And uh, just reminded lately of a brother that did that to me. He saw somehow I was struggling with something and he just looked me up and asked how it's going and prayed for me. And it's, it's a challenge. It's not a big thing. It's just you're there and you do what you can and you show you care in little ways. And that brings us to practicing the giftings that God has given us. Normally, we want the best gifts. We want the most exciting gifts, the ones that are seen, like the gifts of healing, or maybe even whatever, casting out demons and things like that. We want those things. And uh, I remember sometimes we just sit and daydream, you know, what it would be like to have gifts like that. And we could be something in the kingdom of God. If we could really teach like this person can teach. Or just those different things that we see. and uh, we, want to, we want to also be able to do those. But in Romans 12, I want to read Romans 12, 1 to 8. It says, I therefore urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices that are holy and pleasing to God. For this is the reasonable way for you to worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but continually be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may be able to determine what God's will is, what is proper, pleasing, and perfect. For by grace given to me, I ask every one of you, not to think of yourself more highly than you should think, rather to think of yourselves with sober judgment on the measure of faith that God has assigned each of you. For we have many parts in one body, but these parts do not all have the same function. In the same way, even though we are many people, we are one body in the Messiah and individual parts connected to each other. We have differing gifts based on the grace that was given to us. So if your gift is prophecy, use your gift in proportion to your faith. If your gift is serving, devote yourself to serving others. If it is teaching, devote yourself to teaching others. If it is encouraging, devote yourself to encouraging others. If it is sharing, share generously. If it is leading, lead enthusiastically. If it is helping, help cheerfully. As you go through this list... These are all gifts that might seem as unimportant or not grand, like encouraging or sharing, sharing. I mean, even children share sometimes. It's not a big deal. Helping. But they are important. I think they're probably more important than the others. These gifts are often, you could say, hidden in a way that they're not talked about a lot. But 
They are very important, and I think each one of us can probably see some of these things in ourselves. Encouraging, sharing, leading, helping. But the key is, he says here, to do it with our whole heart. To really practice it. To follow after it with our whole heart. And uh, to point it out when we see it in others. So it's just something to think about. I want to move on to a different part now. As is, I don't know if it, it, it could be related, but it was also something that I think about a lot. Um, kingdom work. What is kingdom work? Washing dishes, sweeping your house, cooking a meal, mowing grass, planting flowers, feeding pigs, repairing machines, paying bills, and so forth. Are these things kingdom work? There's this question of sacred versus secular. And I don't know if I'll fully answer your your question on these things. But just remember everything we've already covered. That are these things, can these things be kingdom work? Um, Let's go to Luke 2, chapter 2, verses 41 to 52. Looking at the life of Jesus again. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, as parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. If you look at the life of Christ, you will see that we do not know a lot about his life until he is around 30 years old. There is a period of time from 12 to 30 that is silent, and that's 18 years of silence. What was Jesus doing during this time? Was he even in the will of his Father? Was what he was doing relevant to the kingdom of God and kingdom work? I've often wondered what Jesus did during those silent years. What exactly did he do for work? Who did he interact with? Did he do any miracles? Did he travel? But I think we can all answer the question of whether God was pleased with him or not. 
we know he was exactly where he needed to be, and he was doing exactly what he needed to be doing for 18 years. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And could it be, as you're thinking about the beginning of this, this message on these men and women that went through those years of just menial tasks of everyday life, that Jesus was experiencing the same thing. And through those things, he learned and increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Was God pleased with him? In John 8, 29, he says, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Is there such a thing as sacred versus secular? I'm, on the, I'm of the um, opinion that there is not. I think it's, it's the wrong question. I found this writing by Hugh Welchel that he kind of explains it in a way that I could. Uh, I think he puts a pretty good understanding on it. He says, why do we distinguish between the spiritual and the secular? There is no word for spiritual in the Hebrew Old Testament. Were they not spiritual people? In the Hebrew worldview, everything was spiritual. There was no need to distinguish between spiritual and secular because no part of their existence was secular. Our response as Christians to our Heavenly Father should be unlimited, all-encompassing, and comprehensive. It should not be limited to church on Sundays and some personal devotions during the week. It should appear in every dimension of our lives. The answer to this question gives us great insight into what could be called the besetting sin of the church in the 21st century. We have become double-minded, seeing a false divide between what, we, what would be called spiritual and secular. This divide is responsible for the popular misconception that our relationship with God can be reduced to church-related events and activities. We have been tricked into thinking that there is secular, neutral ground in our lives that is neither for nor against God. Nothing could be further from the truth. A past Pastor John Mark Homer writes, The cosmic, gargantuan, 24-7 kingdom of God cannot be shrunk down to a few hundred people singing songs in a nice building for an hour every weekend. Our response to God should reverberate into every facet of life, at home, at work, in our families, in our communities, and at our churches. This divide has also perpetuated the lie that working in the church or some other spiritual calling is only full-time Christian service. All of life is spiritual and sacred for followers of Christ. To paraphrase Abraham Kuyper, there is no inch of creation where Christ does not rule and consequently no dimension of our lives in which he is not present. This is not a new Christian doctrine. The preacher Charles Spurgeon said in a sermon in 1874, To a man who lives unto God, nothing is secular. Everything is sacred. He puts on his workday garment, and it is a vestment to him. He sits down to his meal, and it is a sacrament. 
He goes forth to his labor and therein exercises the office of the priesthood. His breath is incense and his life a sacrifice. He sleeps on the bosom of God and lives and moves in the divine presence. To draw a hard and fast line and say this is sacred and this is secular is to my mind diametrically opposed to the teaching of Christ and the spirit of the gospel. By demolishing this dichotomy, we realize that God cares about everything we do. Our response to God's power and glory can come from every thought, word, and action if we steward all we have to his glory and and his honor. In this, we find purpose and fulfillment in even the most mundane things we do. On a practical level, how do we overcome the spiritual-secular divide in our everyday lives? We must understand this problem intellectually, then move this truth from our heads to our hearts. This is the hard part. So here are three suggestions, or two. Suggestions from someone who has been working on this for 20 years. He says, Understand that the real distinction in our lives is between righteousness and unrighteousness, between living in union with Christ, conforming to God's character and commands, righteousness, and not rebelling against God and his commands. This is not a struggle we will win on the strength of our own labor. We will only win if we yield to the Holy Spirit working in each one of us. This requires much prayer. By reminding, and the second one, by remind, be reminded of what is required of those called to serve in God's kingdom. The only way to do it is by being in God's word. Paul tells Timothy that the word of God is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. It is an understanding and distinction in our lives between righteousness and unrighteousness. Not sacred versus secular. Is what you are doing righteous or is it unrighteous? Because Christ goes on to say that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, it should be for the glory of God. You cannot separate out, cannot divide that. In Galatians 6, 7, he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Can we do, the question is, if you think about this, can we do what we do during our day in faith? Knowing that God is glorified and that we are doing good to those of the household of faith. And that's, that's what I think about when, when I'm in school, when I'm on a lawnmower. I don't think, okay, this is secular now. I'm doing it, I have to be conscious of God. At all times, you have to be conscious of him. You have to do what you do in faith. And we have to teach our children that even at a young age to be conscious of God in what they're doing, to give their best, whatever their hand finds to do, and do it well. And if God calls us 
like he called James and John, then we drop our fishing nets and we follow after him. But again, it's those little things, those little everyday things that teach us a lot about life and about following Christ and and doing something even when no one's watching. Again, go back to in your mind to all of those people that we mentioned. Those years of just simply being faithful in the little things. I have this poem here in closing. It says, from an old English parsonage down by the sea, there came in the twilight a message for me. It's quaint Saxon legend, deeply engraven. It has, seems to me, God's teaching from heaven. And on through the hours to do uh, the quiet words ring like a low inspiration. Do the next thing. Many a questioning, many a fear, many a doubt has its quieting here. Moment by moment, let down from heaven, time, opportunity, guidance are given. Fear not tomorrow's child of the king. Trust them with Jesus. Do the next thing. Do it immediately. Do it with prayer. Do it reliantly, casting all care. Do it with reverence, tracing Christ's hand, who placed it before you with earnest command. Stayed on omnipotence, safe neath his wing. Leave all resultings. Do the next thing. Looking to Jesus, ever serene, or working or suffering, let this be your demeanor. In his dear presence, the rest of his calm, let the light of Christ's countenance be your psalm. Strong in his faithfulness, praise and sing. Then he commends you. Do the next thing. It's just doing what's in front of us, the needs that we see, as small as they may be. Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Faith is not merely knowing the right facts about God but it is a living trust in God's grace that expresses itself in acts of love, mercy, and service. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. Colossians 3, 23 to 24. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. We are to work hard for Christ out of a true dependence on him. Our attitudes, actions governed by his scriptures and motivated by love for God and our neighbors. When we consciously choose to do our jobs, care for others, serve in various ways for Jesus, who first loved us and gave himself for us, that brings delight to our most mundane tasks. James 1.22, do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Trusting and obeying the Lord is not easy. Following Jesus often requires sacrifice and suffering. Living by every word that comes from God's mouth means submitting to him, obeying him, and trusting him to handle the consequences. Christ knows all, and he knows best. As Christians, we are burdened with glorious purpose. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand 
that we should walk in them. Just as a journey of a thousand miles begins with one step, God usually begins his great works in and through an individual with small things. Matthew 10.42 says that even such a small act as giving someone a cup of cold water will be rewarded. And in Matthew 25.34-40 mentions rewards for visiting people in prison, providing food, shelter, clothing to those in need. Every kind word, encouragement, and small act of kindness can make a huge difference in someone's life, whether it be now or even years later. So, just something that I was thinking about the last couple of weeks is to not give up on the little things. They mean a lot. They mean more than we think they do. Be faithful and uh, I don't think there are, it's coincidence, there are coincidences for all the great men and women of God that I said had to spend all those years learning that. Of even, I'm comforted that even Christ did that. 18 years of silence. Just doing what everybody else is doing. And we see in those three years of his ministry, the impact that he made. And then, of course, the ultimate impact that is even with us today, still. So we're always, we are always about the Father's work. And if we cannot do what we do in faith, then we probably shouldn't be doing it. God bless.